Is there something wrong? Warning. Life support failure on all decks. Abandon ship. Maybe it is time to take command. Bridge to Captain. Join Jan Shaw updating current events as only Jan can. Library computer. Data being received. Produced by CosmicReality.com Hello and welcome to this week's Cosmic Creating Show. It's Saturday the 21st of May 2022. My name is Jan Shaw. I'm known as the Success Alchemist. You can find me at thesuccessalchemist.net, thewebalchemist.net, empoweredmanifestation.com, on Facebook and YouTube, Jan Shaw, the Success Alchemist, and on Twitter, at Coach Jan Shaw, and also now a Telegram channel, US UK Patriot. Find me there. I'll be posting a lot of interesting articles and also the links to everything I cover in the radio shows. And apologies for not doing a show Wednesday. I have had a week of Mercury retrograde on steroids. <laughs> lost my internet completely i've had to find a completely new solution and also had problems with my rv as well so it's been one of those weeks but anyway here i am today i now have internet again so uh, i'm able to share the latest news and today's show is going to focus on durham is real clinton is in trouble monkeypox is the next pandemic perhaps and 2,000 Mules investigation in progress. So I'm going to start with a couple of articles from Just the News. Now, um, you probably know that despite zero coverage by the fake news media, uh, the Sussman trial is underway, and it started on Monday, and everybody in the Anon community was saying, aha, Durham Israel, because he was filmed showing up at the court for the start of the Sussman trial. So we now know that Durham actually is real, which has uh, kind of put a lot of suspicions to rest. And it's been a very interesting week so far. Um, I'm going to start with just the news. and The title is Top 5 Revelations from Trial of Ex-Clinton Campaign Lawyer Michael Sussman. Now, I thought this would be a good um, summary. Technofog has been doing day-to-day reports. So if you want a real in-depth and the actual t- sections of transcripts that he covers, then you can find that on technofog.substack.com. Um, but they're very long, and I don't have time to go into that much detail during the show. So I thought, well, we'll look at what these top five things are. And this was published the 19th of May, so we've had quite a bit happening since then. But this is a good start. The trial of former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman has been filled with surprising twists. Special counsel John Durham has charged Sussman with lying to the FBI, alleging that in September 2016 he pitched a Trump-Russia collusion tale to FBI General Counsel James Baker without disclosing he was working for the Clinton campaign, suggesting instead he was there as a good citizen. Sussman, a former federal prosecutor, has pleaded not guilty to the charge. If found guilty, he faces up to five years in prison. Here are the top five revelations from the Sussman trial, the first trial to emerge out of the Durham probe into the murky origins of the investigation of now-debunked allegations of Trump-Russia collusion to fix the 2016 presidential election. Number one, allegation didn't ring true, dismissed inside of a day. Special Agent Scott Hellman testified on Tuesday that the FBI's analysis of DNS data on Alpha Bank and Trump Organization email servers given to the agency by Sussman was done inside of a day. He said he quickly realized that the allegation of a secret communications link between the Trump Organization and the bank with Kremlin ties didn't ring true at all. Number two, ask Sussman. Top 2016 Clinton campaign lawyer Mark Elias 
said under defence cross-examination on Wednesday to, quote, ask Sussman if he went to the FBI on behalf of the campaign, end quote. He added that from his, stand, from his standpoint, Sussman didn't go to the FBI about the allegation on behalf of the Clinton campaign, and he believed Sussman didn't tell him about the meeting until shortly after it occurred. Number three, FBI couldn't be trusted. Elias also claimed that he didn't trust the FBI enough to bring them the Alpha Bank allegation because they didn't do anything to stop the release of the hacked DNC server emails. He added that he believed then-FBI Director James Comey had taken unfair public stances related to the Hillary Clinton email scandal. 4. Not out to get defendant Former FBI General Counsel James Baker testified Wednesday he was not out to get Michael. He described Sussman as a friend and colleague and said he was just answering questions, underscoring that 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 this was the prosecution's investigation, not his. 5. Durham didn't bully witness. Baker said under defence cross-examination on Thursday that Durham had not threatened to prosecute him for perjury. The defence asked Baker if Durham had threatened to prosecute him for lying under oath to the FBI regarding a mistake he made in his testimony to the Justice Department Office of Inspector General when he said that Sussman told him he was meeting him on behalf of clients who were cybersecurity experts. That was the end of that one. Also on the 19th, another Just the News report, ex-FBI top lawyer Baker confirmed Sussman said in meeting he was not there on clients' behalf. So basically that really um, makes Durham's indictment pretty airtight. What Sussman said to Baker in 2016 meeting is at the centre of the Durham case. Former FBI General Counsel James Baker testified in court Thursday that 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman told him he was not representing any client when he brought him allegations of a secret Kremlin communications channel between the Trump Organization and Russia's Alpha Bank. Special counsel John Durham has charged Sussman with lying to the FBI when he allegedly told Baker in September 2016, weeks before the presidential election, that he was not working on behalf of any client while bringing him the since-debunked allegations. Baker testified Thursday he was 100% confident that Sussman told him he was not acting on behalf of a client. Because of this, Baker protected Sussman's name when FBI agents took the evidence since he viewed him as a source. However, if Sussman had come on behalf of a client, Baker said he wouldn't have protected Sussman's name, just the client. Baker believes Sussman was bringing this information as a good citizen. The former top lawyer at the FBI said the agency was already investigating the Trump campaign's potential ties with Russia, so this information was concerning. Baker also said Sussman said he got the information from serious cybersecurity experts. Baker noted that while it was unusual for him, a lawyer, not an agent, to receive material from the public, any FBI employee can take information and tips from the public. Baker quickly briefed then-assistant director of the FBI Counterintelligence Division, Bill Priestap, about the meeting with Sussman. Priestap wrote in his notes of the call with Baker that Sussman was a lawyer for the Democratic National Committee, but not giving the information on behalf of any client. Priestap also noted that a news story would, within days, be published about the allegation and another would be published in three to four weeks. Then FBI Principal Deputy General Counsel Tricia Anderson also had in her notes from Baker's meeting with his deputies that Sussman gave the information not on behalf of a client. The trial resumed Thursday with Judge Christopher Cooper denying the defence's request for a mistrial and former FBI General Counsel James Baker returning to the stand. On Wednesday, Sussman's legal team filed the mistrial motion after the Clinton campaign's top lawyer, Mark Elias, 
testified that Sussman himself would have to be asked whether he went to the FBI on behalf of the Clinton campaign. Sussman has pleaded not guilty and has yet to decide whether he will testify. On Wednesday, the third day of the trial, Baker testified that he understood Sussman to represent the DNC and Clinton campaign in cyber matters but not political ones. Baker said he was not out to get Michael, whom he described as a friend and colleague. Baker underscored that the Durham probe is the prosecution's investigation, not his as he testified about the text Sussman sent him to set up the meeting. A text from Sussman to Baker on September 18, 2016 reads, Jim, it's Michael Sussman. I have something time-sensitive and sensitive I need to discuss. Do you have availability for a short meeting tomorrow? I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client or company. Want to help the Bureau. Thanks. Also on Thursday, one of the jurors told the court that the juror's daughter and Sussman's daughter are on the same crew team of about 30 girls. The girls are in different years at school and the juror has not met any of the Sussmans. The prosecution moved to unseat the juror, which the judge denied. Judge Cooper noted, per the defence's argument, that the connection was not so close that it affects the partiality of the juror. The judge added the juror wasn't aware of the connection when filling out the juror questionnaire, informed the court upon learning the information and assured the court the connection wouldn't prejudice the juror. And then we have an Epoch Times report, again from the 19th, FBI lawyer, knowing Clinton was behind Trump allegations, would have changed things. The FBI lawyer who served as a conduit for flimsy allegations against Donald Trump said May 19th he would have acted differently if he knew Trump's rival for the presidency, Hillary Clinton, was behind the claims. James Baker, who now works for Twitter, said that he likely would not have met with Michael Sussman, who is accused of passing on data that allegedly linked Trump's business to a Russian bank, if he knew Sussman was acting on behalf of the Clinton campaign. I don't think I would have, Baker said on the stand in federal court in Washington. Knowing Trump's opponent was behind the allegations would have raised very serious questions, certainly about the credibility of the source and the veracity of the information, Baker said. It would also have heightened a substantial concern in my mind about whether we were going to be played. The testimony bolsters a key piece of special counsel John Durham's case against Sussman, that knowing the sources propelling Sussman to meet with Baker would have altered how the FBI analysed the information, which the Bureau ultimately found did not substantiate the claims of a secret back-channel between the Trump Organisation and Alpha Bank. Absent Sussman's false statement, the FBI might have taken additional or more incremental steps before opening and or closing an investigation, prosecutors said in Sussman's indictment, which charged him with lying to the FBI. Defence lawyers have argued that the impact of Sussman's alleged lie was trivial or negligible. Sussman met Baker in the FBI lawyer's office on September 19, 2016, just weeks before the presidential election. No other persons were present. Baker said Thursday that would not have been the case if he knew the, Cl the Clinton campaign's involvement. He said he likely would have directed Sussman to, a to other FBI personnel. Bureau lawyers don't typically receive information or would have still met with Sussman but made sure other personnel were present. I was willing to meet with Michael alone because I had high confidence in him and trust, said Baker, who has described Sussman as a friend. I think I would have made a different assessment if he said he had been appearing on behalf of a client. Sussman told Baker in a text message the night before the meeting that he had sensitive information he wanted to pass on, but that he was doing so on his own accord, not on behalf of any clients. Baker testified that Sussman repeated the lie during the meeting. Sussman later told a congressional panel that the information was given to him by a client. I think it's most accurate to say it was done on behalf of my client, Sussman said. 
apparently referring to Rodney Joffe, a technology executive who has said he was promised a position in the government if Clinton won the election. While Sussman, Joffe and others worked on the white papers that he ultimately passed to Baker, the lawyer was billing the Clinton campaign according to billing records. Sussman also told the campaign about the allegations before he met with Baker, though the campaign allegedly did not approve the meeting. Sussman was well known to the FBI, having worked with the Bureau on multiple cases, including the alleged hack of a Democratic National Committee servers. Sussman had a vibrant national security practice that had contact with the FBI a lot, Baker said. Sussman worked for Perkins Coy, which was the Clinton campaign's law firm, during the 2016 election and has a long history of working with Democrats. On cross-examination, Sean Berkowitz, representing Sussman, hammered Baker over inconsistencies in his testimony and what he said before. Baker, for instance, told the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General in 2019 that Sussman said he had information stemming from people that were his clients. Baker said he was using a shorthand way of describing the cyber experts with whom Sussman was working. In 2018, testifying to a House of Representatives panel behind closed doors, Baker said he couldn't remember whether he knew at the time that Baker was representing the Clinton campaign. I don't know that I had that in my head when he showed up in my office, Baker said at the time. I just find that unbelievable that the guy representing the Clinton campaign, the DNC, shows up with information that says we got this and you don't ask where he got it. You didn't know how he got it. Representative Jim Jordan responded. I was uncomfortable with being in the position of having too much factual information conveyed to me because I'm not an agent. And so I wanted to get the information into the hands of the agents as quickly as possible and let them deal with it. If they wanted to go interview Sussman and ask him all those kinds of questions, fine with me, Baker said. According to Baker's testimony and previous remarks from Sussman, no agents ended up asking those kinds of questions. I just want to uh, include this post from Brian Cates on Telegram. Um, this relates to the Mark Elias testimony. Holy crap, Sussman's defence team is arguing that Judge Cooper needs to strike certain portions of Mark Elias's testimony as, quote, non-responsive and prejudicial, end quote, prohibit, prohibit any further reference in the trial to Elias's testimony, but that's not all. They go on to ask the judge to permit the defence to publish a transcript of Elias's revised testimony to the jury. I have never, in 30 years of covering court cases, heard of such a thing. This guy testified the wrong way. He said things he shouldn't have, so we want that stricken from the record, judge. And then we have a prepared transcript of what the witness should have testified to that we want to give to the jury. So the defence is obviously panicking because stuff is coming out in these testimonies that really dump Sussman in deep doo-doo. Now, many people have been complaining about the time that Durham is taking to get these indictments out and also bemoaning the fact that the people that have been indicted are very low on the food chain, as it were. But we've, we're seeing really now more of Durham's strategy because he is putting together piece by piece the jigsaw puzzle of how the corruption and the, the conspiracy goes right up the chain of command. So I'm going to read you a an article from CBS News, which is not a source I usually cover, but this was actually posted on Telegram by uh, Catherine Herridge, who she's been in lots of cube drops before, and she has this um, approach of showing documents and highlighting certain pieces. So given that she shared this, I decided that I would go with this one um, this was published yesterday on the 20th. Um, former Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook says Clinton agreed to give Trump Russia material to reporter. 
uh, Robbie Mook, the former campaign manager for Hillary Clinton, testified on Friday that the 2020 Democratic presidential nominee agreed to provide information about a link between her opponent Donald Trump and Russian Alpha Bank to a reporter, despite the fact that her campaign was not certain about the truth of the allegations. During cross-examination, Mook said the campaign was not fully confident in the Alpha Bank allegations and wanted to give them to a reporter so the reporter could, quote, run it down further, end quote, and verify it. Slate first published a story suggesting Alpha Bank, a Moscow-based financial institution, had a server that was irregularly pinging a server registered to the New York-based Trump organization. The FBI investigated and a report by the Justice Department Inspector General said it concluded that there were no links between Alpha Bank and Trump. Moot took the stand during the trial of Michael Sussman, who is charged in special counsel John Durham's probe with lying to the FBI during the Trump-Russia investigation after he brought the FBI unverified evidence concerning Trump and Alpha Bank. The scope of the trial is narrow, focusing on whether or not Sussman, whose law firm represented Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, was acting on behalf of a client. Mook said the decision to release the Alpha allegations to a reporter was discussed with senior campaign officials, including senior policy adviser and now the White House National Security Adviser, Jake Sullivan, campaign chairman John Podesta and communications director Jennifer Palmieri. Clinton was briefed about the decision to go to the press with the allegations in the fall of 2016 and according to Mook she thought we made the right decision. Mook testified he did not see the alpha allegations as a silver bullet that would end the Trump campaign referring to other information being published linking Trump to Russia. Slate's article on the purported link between Alpha Bank and Trump ran on October 31, 2016, days before Election Day. When asked by Prosecutor Andrew DeFilippis if he doubted the credibility of the allegations when the article ran, Mook said he was not a cyber expert and thought that the article gave the claims more credibility. I'm sure you know reporters publish things that aren't true, DeFilippis pushed back. Mook testified that going to the FBI did not seem like an effective way of getting the information to the public. He said the campaign didn't trust the FBI, noting two of probably the most damaging days to the campaign were caused by James Comey, not by Donald Trump. When asked if Clinton approved of Sussman going to the FBI, Mook said he was not aware. I don't know why she would have. Mook testified it was malpractice not to conduct opposition research, detailing that opposition research on Trump was very complicated. He was incredibly litigious, so there was a lot of work to be done around different lawsuits that he filed or had been filed against him. Sussman's law firm, Perkins Coy, played a role in this work, according to Mook. In his second day of testimony, then-FBI General Counsel James Baker told the jury that he learned Sussman, whose law firm represented Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, had billed his time to the Clinton campaign for drafting papers presented to the FBI, he would absolutely have been concerned. This was tied to the central question of the trial, whether Sussman had brought the information to investigators on his own and not on behalf of any legal client. Had Baker known who Sussman's clients were, he said he would have feared the FBI was being pulled into a political ploy. I would have had serious conversations with the leadership of the FBI about what, if anything, to do with this material and how to handle it. This is the first criminal trial stemming from the Durham investigation. So we've now got um, Hillary Clinton um, implicated in this conspiracy and this, I think, is going to result in further indictments. Uh, may not go straight to Hillary Clinton yet, but we'll have to see. I think um, potentially I saw a report that John Podesta may well have to testify. And so it's I'm very encouraged by this that, um, you know, drip by drip, it's um, turning the screws on 
all these conspirators and probably will go as high as Obama because we were reminded that um, John Brennan briefed Obama on what Hillary Clinton was doing. So he was aware of it. And, uh, you know, it's likely that he will be implicated as well. So anyway, it's nice to know Durham is real <laughs> after all the speculation. And it'll be interesting to see how the rest of this trial plays out. But it seems rather like a done deal already, given the testimony that's all already been given. So I'm going to move on to what seems to be the next pandemic, otherwise known as monkeypox. Um, there's a lot of uh, tweets about this on Twitter by um, anons including myself, saying that we don't believe a word of this. It's just an attempt to um, scare people into more lockdowns and uh, mandates and everything else leading up to the midterm elections. And interestingly, the Biden administration has ordered millions of dollars worth of monkeypox vaccinations. So it's a bit of a giveaway that they're doing their dirty work again. Robert Malone, uh, MD, who was involved in the original development of mRNA, um, he's written a substack about monkeypox, truth versus fear porn. And this was, um, I think, yesterday. I keep getting asked the same question again and again. Is this outbreak of monkeypox a real threat? Or is this another case of overstated and weaponized public health messaging? I'm going to save my answer to this question for the end of this article and instead focus on what monkeypox is, the nature and characteristics of the associated disease, what we know and don't know. Incidentally, there's um, a, a social media post going around which is showing yet again that the media is falsely using uh, an image to mislead. So there's an image of, of what is supposed to be monkeypox, where it's also the same image has been showing shingles and the, you know, the rash, the nasty pustules that you get with shingles. So that's already been discredited. The monkeypox virus, which originates in various regions of Africa, is related to smallpox variola, which are both members of the genus orthopox virus. However, it is important to understand that variola, major or minor, is the species of virus which is responsible for the worst human disease caused by the orthopox viruses. For example, cowpox, horsepox and camelpox are also members of this genus, none of which are a major health threat to humans, and one of which, cowpox, has even been historically used as a smallpox vaccine. My point is that just because monkeypox is related to smallpox, this does not in any way mean that it represents a similar public health threat. Anyone who implies otherwise is basically engaged in or otherwise supporting weaponized public health-related propaganda. In other words, spreading public health fear porn. Monkeypox was first identified in 1958 in colonies of monkeys and the first human case of the virus was identified in 1970 in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Most likely this was just the first case identified as people living in Africa have been in contact with monkeys and other monkeypox animal hosts for millennia. The West African monkeypox clade, clade equals variant, circulating outside of Africa at this time, causes a milder disease compared to the closely related virus found in other regions of Africa, Congo clade. The symptoms of monkeypox are somewhat similar to but much milder than smallpox disease. The general clinical presentation of the disease caused by the West African monkeypox clade virus involves influenza-like symptoms, fever, body aches, chills, together with swollen lymph nodes. A rash on the palm of the hand is often observed. In the latter stage of the disease, which may last for up to a month or more in some cases, 
may involve small lesions which develop a crust and which can result in a small depigmented scar. There is no evidence of asymptomatic transmission. In other words, current medical knowledge indicates that it is only spread by person-to-person -person contact between an uninfected individual and someone who already has symptoms of the disease. Therefore, disease spread can be readily controlled by classical public health interventions such as contact tracing, temporary quarantine of those who have had physical contact with someone who is infected, and longer-term quarantine of those who develop symptoms. Essentially, all of the current cases in the West, which we are seeing in the news, are among men who have, who have sex with men and appear to be due to close physical contact. Monkeypox is endemic in many parts of Africa and is a zoonotic virus, meaning it can be transmitted from a variety of animals, not just monkeys, to humans. Initial animal-to-human transmission, followed by limited human-to-human -human transmission, is probably the cause of the sporadic cases typically observed in Africa. Chickenpox, which is highly transmissible, is not part of the genus Orthopox virus, despite that name pox. Once again, for emphasis, cowpox and camelpox are also in the genus Orthopox virus, and they are not particularly pathogenic, when contracted by humans. Just because monkeypox is a pox virus in the genus Orthopox virus does not mean it is particularly deadly. So I'm going to jump down to near the bottom because it's a very long article and it goes into all the um, details about um, the construction of the virus. Uh, it's not an RNA virus, it's a DNA virus and what that means in terms of transmissibility and so on. I'm going to go down to um, more of a closing statement about this. The Bill Gates-funded organization Gavi has provided their assessment of the medical threat posed by monkeypox, which can be found here. There's a link. Many readers of this substack will not be surprised by my assessment that this Gavi threat assessment is highly biased towards overstatement. For example, the article seeks to create parallels between monkeypox and Ebola. And a quote from it, similar to viruses like Ebola, transmission only happens in close proximity by contact with lesions, body fluids, respiratory droplets or contaminated materials such as bedding or clothes. The article also states the following pants on fire disinformation. Although symptoms often ease within a month, one in ten cases can be fatal. Children are particularly susceptible. Fact-check determination by qualified subject matter expert, pants on fire. <laughs> this assertion represents a very biased interpretation of a data report from the World Health Organization. In 2020, the World Health Organization reported 4,594 suspected cases of monkeypox, including 171 deaths, case fatality ratio 3.7%. They are described as suspected because confirmation requires PCR testing, which is not easily available in endemic areas. Those readers who have become sensitized to this type of information manipulation and weaponization will immediately notice two key things about this comment. First, the reported mortality of 3.7%, not 10% of cases, is from suspected, not confirmed cases. Secondly, this type of sampling is highly biased towards more severe disease. Countries rarely will detect and do not report cases of mild disease to the WHO. So is the biothreat real? Is it imminent? Does it justify the global media hype? As I was waiting in an airport lounge to travel from USA to the UK two days ago, I saw a newsreel from CNN which was breathlessly reporting on this threat while displaying historic images of patients suffering from smallpox disease. This provides a classic example of public health fear porn, in my opinion, and CNN should be reprimanded for broadcasting irresp irresponsible propaganda, misinformation and disinformation under the guise of journalism. 
In my opinion, based on currently available information, monkeypox is a virus and disease which is endemic in Africa, emerges sporadically after transmission into humans from animal hosts, and is typically spread by close human contact. It is readily controlled by classical public health measures. It does not have a high mortality rate unless there has been some genetic alteration, either through evolution or intentional genetic manipulation. It is not a significant bio threat and has never been considered a high threat pathogen in the past. So stop the fear mongering, misinformation and disinformation. Now, further clues that this is a another plan stroke scamdemic is something reported by brownstone.org and this article was published yesterday monkeypox was a tabletop simulation only last year isn't that a giveaway they always do a simulation before they actually do the the dirty work so this article says elite media outlets around the world are on red alert over the world's first ever global outbreak of monkeypox in mid-May 2022, just one year after an international biosecurity conference in Munich held a simulation of a global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox beginning in mid-May 2022. And there's an image, which must be a screenshot, um, saying the discussion was organised into three sequential moves corresponding with scenario developments, followed by a roundtable discussion of broader biosecurity and pandemic pre preparedness issues. The step-by-step -step approach to revealing scenario developments reflected the limitations of information available to real-world decision-makers as well as the resulting uncertainty associated with a pandemic of unknown origin. And it's got a, um, like an infographic here as well. Uh, the article continues, monkeypox was first identified in 1958, but there's never been a global monkeypox outbreak outside of Africa until now, in the exact week of the exact month predicted by the biosecurity folks in their pandemic simulation. Take these guys to Vegas. And it's showing on this image that the attack would be May 15th, 2022. Ed Yong, who's penned dozens of hysterical articles on COVID for The Atlantic, including such gems as COVID-19 long haulers are fighting for their future. Even healthcare workers with long COVID are being dismissed. How did this many deaths become normal? And the final pandemic betrayal is hot on the scene of the new monkeypox outbreak. Eric Fagel-Ding is also all over this, and there's a tweet breaking the first confirmed case of monkeypox in the United States this year just confirmed in a Boston individual who recently travelled to Canada, officials said, as concern rises over the spread of the infectious virus in multiple countries, now US. Epidemiologists Jennifer Nutso and Bill Hanage are on the scene, but still no word from them as to whether they see anything strange about the first ever global monkeypox outbreak occurring in mid-May 2022, a year after they acted as advisors on an international biosecurity simulation of a global mon monkeypox outbreak occurring in mid-May 2022. And... It goes on, the US government is hot on the scene with an order of 13 million monkeypox vaccine doses from Bavarian Nordic. The WHO is on the scene. There's a headline that says monkeypox WHO convenes emergency meeting as UK cases double. It comes as the WHO convenes a meeting of monkeypox experts to discuss the worldwide outbreak. The global monkeypox outbreak occurring on the exact timeline predicted by a biosecurity simulation of a global monkeypox outbreak a year prior bears a striking resemblance to the outbreak of COVID-19 just months after event 201, a simulation of a coronavirus pandemic almost exactly like COVID-19. Event 201 was hosted in October 19, 2019, just two months before the coronavirus was first revealed in Wuhan by the Gates Foundation, the World Economic Forum, Bloomberg and Johns Hopkins. 
As with the event 201, the participants at the monkey box simulation have thus far been stone silent as to their having participated in a pandemic simulation, the facts of which happened to come true in real life just months later. One person who was present at both event 201 and the monkeypox simulation is George Fu Gao, director of the Chinese Centre for Disease Control. At event 201, Gao specifically raised the point of countering misinformation during a hypothetical coronavirus pandemic. Here's Gao at event 201 right next to our own Avril Haynes, director of national intelligence, technically the highest level intelligence official in the United States. Look at these cuties. Doesn't that make you feel all warm and fuzzy? Phew, making Kim Philby jealous. That said, I won't sit here and debate wild conspiracy theories that there might be anything unusual about a global pandemic occurring just months after a simulation of a global pandemic of exactly that kind, followed shortly after by the first ever global outbreak of an even more obscure virus just months after a simulation of an outbreak of exactly that kind. If you want to be a good American and make a six-figure salary or be friends with people who make six-figure salaries, then do as your government tells you. Sit down, shut up, stay home, save lives, take your shot, show your papers and muzzle your kids. So now on to the 2000 Mules investigation in progress. And this is a report from Gateway Pundit. Um, it was published today, actually, this morning. Big Arizona fraud update. Law enforcement raids non-profits in 2000 Mules ballot trafficking investigation. Like Tweety Birds, they sang. So, before I go into the uh, article itself, if you haven't seen 2000 Mules, I strongly recommend it. It's a very well-made documentary i've mentioned it before i've covered it before apparently it's now been um shown in many movie theaters it's been put out there again by dinesh d'souza and so or you can actually buy a dvd or you can actually pay to watch it on dinesh's locals channel i actually watched the premiere when it was first released and so i also got to see um the discussions about it and also the questions from the audience watching on zoom so um it looks like arizona is the first to follow up on this with an actual investigation law enforcement has conducted a raid on Yuma County non-profit organisations connected to the ballot trafficking scheme discovered by Yuma County citizens and revealed in the 2000 Mules documentary. True the Vote and Dinesh D'Souza's groundbreaking new film revealed that the 2020 presidential election was stolen through illegal ballot trafficking and featured the undercover investigative work of David Lara and Arizona State Senate candidate Gary Snyder. As the Gateway Pundit previously reported, the Yuma County Sheriff and Yuma County Recorder opened a new investigation into cases of impersonation fraud, false registrations, duplicate voting and fraudulent use of absentee ballots. And there's a link to a previous Gateway Pundit article Huge Arizona election fraud investigation is a direct response to 2000 Mules investigation and whistleblower interview. Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules documentary exposed massive evidence of illegal ballot trafficking during the 2020 presidential election in key swing states nationwide. And law enforcement is now investigating these crimes in Arizona. The fake news media is already trying to deny everything. In a report titled, The Yuma Sheriff Isn't Investigating Election Fraud Because of 2000 Mules, the far-left dark money non-profit Arizona Mirror reported, and this is a quote from that, the film alleges that by using geolocation data purchased by the filmmakers, they were able to track ballot mules to drop boxes where they falsely alleged the mules were paid to stuff the boxes with completed ballots. The practice, pejoratively referred to as ballot harvesting, is illegal in Arizona and many other states. 
Wilmot announced last week that his office and the county recorder's office are investigating voting fraud cases from 2020, but there is no indication that any of the cases involve the movie's claims. Instead, YCSO said the cases include impersonation fraud, false registrations, duplicate voting and fraudulent use of absentee ballots. That's the end of the quote, and the article continues. In fact, all four of these voter fraud cases appear to be related to the evidence presented in the film. Additionally, this investigation was announced just over one week after the nationwide premiere of The 2000 Mules. The Lame Brain article even confused ballot trafficking for ballot harvesting, two very different things. Trump-endorsed Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake broke the news from Yuma County this morning on Twitter. Election fraud update. Just got a tip that there are some big developments in the election corruption investigation in Yuma County, Arizona, possibly including law enforcement raids on non-profits potentially involved in ballot trafficking. The Gateway Pundit previously reported that David Lara and Gary Snyder busted a local ballot trafficking operation in Yuma County using undercover cameras long before the 2020 presidential election. This information was delivered to Arizona Attorney General Mark Brenovich, who failed to act before it was too late. And again, a link to a previous article Exclusive man who discovered ballot trafficking operation in Yuma County handed evidence to Attorney General Brunovich before 2020 general election. They could have stopped this. Two men in Yuma County, Arizona, Gary Snyder and David Lara, busted a local ballot trafficking operation using undercover cameras during the 2020 primary election. Lara and Snyder recorded and photographed ballot traffickers stuffing ballot boxes on the day of the August 4th, 2020 primary election. TGP spoke to Lara and Snyder on Friday following this major announcement. David Lara told the Gateway Pundit what he knows about the bust. He also revealed what happened when he spoke to New York Times reporter Alexandra Burzon about the incident. And there's a screenshot of what appears to be an email from this Alexandra Burzon uh, on May the 10th. Hi, Gary. I cover election stroke voting for the New York Times. I'm working on a story and there's something I was hoping you might be able to help with. Would you have a moment? Um, thanks so much. Best, Alexandra. Uh, Lara, the New York Times has been calling us, but once we gave them our story, they don't want it. They don't want it. Not only that, the New York Times wanted me to reveal who the person was in the movie. I told her, I told her I'm not going to jeopardize this woman and I'm not going to jeopardize 22 years of work just for you. Then she asked me if I got paid. I laughed at that. I laughed at that. I said, my friend, let me tell you something. Right off the bat, when I met Greg Phillips, that was the first thing I told them. I'm not in this for money. I'm trying to fix 22 years of corruption and voter fraud. I have not made or I have not taken a single dime. I have not been offered a single dime and I wouldn't take it. Yesterday morning, there was, and it went on all day, I don't know if it's still going on right now, but there was a sting operation in San Luis, and there was a non-profit they got a visit. One of the employees was, now I don't know for a fact if she was arrested or if she was notified to appear in court. The only thing I do know is that they went to her job in that non-profit. They had a search warrant. They confiscated her electronic devices then went to her house. They searched this woman's house. There's been a lot of people that have been interviewed, and my sources, who are very reliable, tell me that several people they have interviewed already sounded like Tweety Birds. They sang. I'm not just saying this to pump up Greg and Catherine, but if it wouldn't have been for their help, I think I would still be besides Gary. I'd still be sucking on one thumb and stuck shit creek without a paddle. They've gone out of their way not only to expose this, but to help us. Gary Snyder, a candidate for Arizona State Senate in Yuma County, provided more information on what he saw. Snyder previously worked with David Lara to bust the San Luis ballot trafficking scheme, 
which led to two indictments and inspired him to fight for election integrity in the Arizona Senate. Snyder, my campaign started mentally in 2020 when I saw all this fraud and actually I recorded quite a bit and this is how we are at this juncture right now and then with the steal of the voting for the presidential election for elected officials locally, what do you do? When me, David, law enforcement, true the vote, 2,000 mules and everyone else is willing to stick their back on the line for it, it means nothing if the Attorney General or the judges aren't willing to prosecute to the full extent of the law. We complain about open borders, we complain about inflation, complaining about quite a bit of stuff. But at the end of the day, complaining means nothing because the one that's going to take care of it are the ones in the seat. And if you want a better elected official or you vote, well, it's not fair when you vote when you already got the vote stolen so they already know who the final game piece is going to be there. So that should be the number one issue in the United States is going back to voting system and the way it's been manipulated and open for expo exposure and fraud. I was actually eating breakfast around the area and we saw quite a few unmarked cars headed that way. So we didn't see the raid, but we saw the cars in San Luis. You know, you can't really miss unmarked cars in quite a movement down those streets. And the, the article ends, there has been no official law enforcement press release at the time of this publication. So I just want to finish by adding in another topic. I didn't mention it in the title. I wasn't sure if I'd have time for it. But there's been a lot of uh, news coming out relating to Elon Musk. And I've shared on previous shows that I wasn't sure whether he was a white hat or a black hat. He seems to be coming out more and more on the side of the good guys. Um, X-22 reported much earlier in the week that he was seeing this Elon Musk situation with the purchase of Twitter as a sting operation. Because he's actually put the purchase on hold, requiring Twitter to provide evidence of what they claim the number of bots to be uh, on the Twitter platform. They're saying that it's less than 5% are bots. Now, this has implications if that statement is fraudulent um, about the number of users because it has a bearing on the valuation of Twitter um, the statements made to the SEC, to shareholders and to advertisers because if there's a huge number of bots, then genuine users which who are the market for these advertisers and so on are going to be much, much lower. So the chances of the advertising reaching their market are reduced amongst other things. And it's also interesting that at the same time, there's been a, an analysis of Biden's followers. And it looks like from that analysis that about 50% of his followers are bots, which, again, undermines the claim that he received 81 million votes in the general election. And at the same time this week, there have been people saying, well, hang on a minute, if you add up 81 million votes and the 79 million that purportedly Trump received, that actually adds up to more than the total votes recorded. So that's another reason for believing that the 2020 uh, presidential election was fraudulent. But there's another thing that Musk um, announced this week and that was that he had voted Democrat all his voting life, but he had now decided that he was going to vote Republican. He tweeted this out three days ago. In the past, I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindness party, but they have become the party of division and hate. So I can no longer support them and I will vote Republican. Now, watch their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. And two days ago, he followed that up. Judging by the relentless hate stream from the far left, this tweet was spot on. 
Now, interestingly, as soon as he'd made the announcement that he was going to be voting Republican, of course, the mainstream media put out a smear claiming that um, he had been involved in a sexual misconduct on a flight in 2016 where he supposedly exposed himself to a, a SpaceX a flight attendant um, and paid her off with $250,000. I'm not going to go into the detail. But he put some interesting tweets out in response to this. The attacks against me should be viewed through a political lens. This is their standard despicable playbook, but nothing will deter me from fighting for a good future and your right to free speech. And then again, and this was a bit of a joke, <laughs> finally we get to use Elongate as a scandal name. It's kind of perfect. And this refers to the the claim that he exposed his penis to <laughs> this flight attendant. So Elongate is something of a play on words. He's, he's got something actually back from... 25th of March, before that, that he was replying to, it says, if there's ever a scandal about me, please call it Elongate. And uh, he then later tweeted, Tesla is building a hardcore litigation department where we directly initiate and execute lawsuits. The team will report directly to me. Please send three to five bullet points describing evidence of exceptional ability justice at tesla.com and several tweets please include links to cases you have tried and then another one looking for hardcore street fighters not white shoe lawyers like perkins or cooley who thrive on corruption there will be blood so there's much speculation about why suddenly he's building this um group or team of legal experts um, you know, we have to wonder whether he is working side by side with Trump and the White Hats. It certainly seems to be heading that way. Um, and, you know, that kind of puts to into question the idea that he is a globalist and, you know, he's into the transhumanism and everything else. We'll have to wait and see. I just want to finish with a couple of uh, posts on Telegram. I've shared these on my um, US-UK Patriot channel on Telegram. This is from Truth Hammer. The new WHO treaty being discussed would be amendments to the international health regulations of 2005. Now, multiple countries up in all the the citizens of multiple countries up in arms about the possibility of handing over sovereignty to the WHO in the case of a pandemic. So this continues. When you look this up, you'll usually see language telling you that it is legally binding on the 196 members who are members of the WHO. But did anybody bother to stop and look up what the potential enforcement actions are? If you just give the WHO the finger like Trump did, what can the WHO do about it? kick you out of the who boo fucking who that's it people that's the big scary gun the who holds to our heads we might not get to be in the club anymore if we don't play nice did you really entertain the silly fantasy that pansy ass woke fruitcake gender confused un troops would have authority or the balls to march through america trying to enforce that shit in the face of more than 400 million second amendment affirming firearms in the hands of citizens protected by a constitution that gives them the right to overthrow their own government any time they decide it's no longer working for them. So that was a, a good piece of advice or information, actually, to people who were panicking about this. And finally, a good summation of where we are at the moment from where we go one, we go all. Durham activated, Sussman trial proving Russiagate was fake slander, Elon Musk going scorched earth, amplifying said Russia hoax. Biden follower audit exposing Twitter as a bot wasteland, raising questions about the 81 million. Ratcliffe dropping former Q articles with major source linking Hillary to the plan to vilify Trump. Title 42 protected by federal courts. Netflix laying off their most vocal social justice warriors. Truth Social opening up 
countrywide, total and non-party, Archbishop denying Pelosi communion, and G.W., George W. Bush, that was, outing his illegal war in Iraq. Man, it is not a good time at present for the deep state. Now's the time to push. Get all your best dirt and pile on. So it certainly seems like we are winning at the moment. You know, I've said this multiple times, but it's really encouraging to see these developments, which are definitely not good for the deep state. So that's all I have time for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll join me on Wednesday for another Cosmic Creating show. Um, you can find me again at the successalchemist.net, the webalchemist.net, Empowered Manifestation. Please follow my US UK Patriot Telegram channel. Thank you to Nancy for producing and also to Derek Condit of mysticalwares.com for sponsoring Cosmic Reality Radio without which none of this will be possible. So until next time, say, stay safe, be well, and bye for now. You have been listening to Cosmic Creating with Jan Shaw, updating current reality, a production of CosmicReality.com. <laughs>